Amen. It is the prayerful desire of this pastor, and I'm sure pastors throughout the world, that as we as a body sing to the Lord that the words are indeed the prayers of our hearts, we sing and we ask the Lord to accept the fact that we are singing all his praises and acknowledging who he is, and there is no other, no other Lord except Jesus. And so good morning, welcome again, I'm Pastor Dan, and this morning my sermon is entitled, In His Presence. My text is from the book of Acts, chapters 3 and 4. I utilize the New King James Version, so if you will turn there and be prepared to follow me as I deliver my thoughts. For the moment, please pray with me in the spirit of Psalm 1914. So dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Are you in his presence? That's a subtle statement, a subtle question. And it is an exclamation of Easter. And this is the timeline of my sermon. It has been almost two months since the crucifixion of Jesus. Two months since Mary's little lamb, God's dear son, had been executed by the Roman soldiers. And in the eyes of many, Jesus was nothing more than a momentary blimp on the screen of time. Just another religious fanatic who had come and gone. You know, Pilate washed his hands of him, and the Pharisees were glad to be rid of him. The people no longer cared because he was not the political Messiah that they had been hoping for. Yet when Peter and John came to town, it did not take long to realize that they had been with Jesus. When you got around these men, you could sense the aroma of Jesus. You could see the radiance of Jesus. You could feel the presence of Jesus. And you could hear the words of Jesus. And that is only true because of Easter. Because of Easter, you can be with Jesus. And this morning, as you anticipated this worship time, you should have been with Jesus. And because of Easter, we are with Jesus right now. Let's not forget what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20. Where four, two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, what are the signs, what are the marks of someone who has been with Jesus? The first mark is compassion. Ostensibly, the reason why these men were in trouble to begin with was because they had healed a man who had been lamed for over 40 years. Acts 4-7 states, And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, the this they were referring to was the healing of the man that had taken place in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. You see, there was a man who had been lame from birth, who had been carried to the temple ever since he was a child, so that he might beg for money. And so Acts 3, 2 states, 
And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. No one paid much attention to him. You know, back in those days, back in that society, they were nothing more than burdens. They were a drain on society. The man was crying and begging and no one paid any attention to him until, G, until John and Peter came along. You see, they took the time to show this man a personal compassion. One of the things that stands out about the life of our precious Lord was how he took time for individuals. You know, as you study the Gospels, you will find that many of the accounts in the life of Jesus are the encounters that he had with just one individual. Jesus was never too big, never too burdened, never too busy for one person. We need a vision like Jesus, whose telescopic view took in the whole world, but whose microscopic perception, insight, included every individual. But they also showed a practical compassion. They didn't just drop a silver coin into this man's cup trying to substitute silver for sympathy. They did what they could to meet the man's needs. If this man had been hungry, they would have fed him. If this man had been naked, they would have clothed him. If this man had been thirsty, they would have given him drink. You know, you cannot help but be compassionate with people when you have been with Jesus. Because Jesus was a man of compassion, and even today, he wants to be compassionate to the world through us. You know, I read a story of an orphanage who had a superintendent who would always pray with the children. And when he would ask the blessing, he would bow his head with all the little children in the orphanage, and he would say, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the food that you have provided. We want you to come and and be our honored guest at this meal. Well, One little fellow had heard this prayer so many, many times, and he finally said, why doesn't Jesus ever come? You always invite him to be our guest. Will he ever come? And this superintendent said, well, he will come if you you really, really want him to. And this little fellow said, well, I'm going to put a chair out for him. He put a chair right next to his chair and said, this chair is for Jesus, if he comes. Well, that same day, there was a knock on the door, and they went to the door and saw this old man in rags, who was hungry and shivering from the cold. And the superintendent said, sir, come in and share a meal with us. We'll be glad to have you. Just come in here and sit down and warm yourself. And they sat him at the very chair that was meant for Jesus. And he put the man on that chair. And after this was over, the little fellow looked up at the superintendent and he said, I see it now. Jesus couldn't come himself, but he sent this man to take our place. You know, Jesus said, if you have done it unto the one, the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. But also notice that Peter and John had a powerful compassion. Because they healed this one man, 
We read in chapter 4, verse 4, that 5,000 men were converted. We will never reach the masses of this world until we reach out to the individual sinner. And notice, by the way, you can jail the messenger, but you cannot jail the message. You can jail the preacher, but you cannot jail the preaching. You can jail the worker, but you cannot jail the word. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.9, as he reports that he suffered trouble even to the point of chains, and he said, but the word of God is not chained. The second mark that you have been with Jesus is conviction. The real reason these men were in hot water was not because of the miracle they performed, but because of the message that they preached. Listen. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 states, Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. What were they preaching? They were preaching the blood redemption of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 10 states, Let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Peter was taking the very men who crucified Jesus back to the old rugged cross. To this world, the cross is like a red flag to a raging pole. You know, Paul did say, to the Jews, it will be a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it will be foolishness. So here were Peter and John preaching the cross to the very men who put him there. But they didn't care. To the old rugged cross, they would ever be true. But listen, when you preach the cross of Jesus... You preach the blood of Jesus. And when you preach the blood of Jesus, the world will be wanting yours. When Billy Graham was getting started, a professor from Cornell University wrote him and said, Mr. Graham, you have a great talent and you have what it takes to be a successful minister. But if you want to continue to be successful, you have to leave out that part about the blood. It's out of date. And no enlightened man in the 20th century will swallow it. Well, I thank God that Billy Graham determined at that point to preach the blood more than ever before. And how God has blessed it. But Peter and John also preached the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You see, they never mentioned the old rugged cross without also mentioning the blessed empty tomb. And since the Sadducees did not believe in any resurrection, this was a declaration of war. There are two doctrines that are absolutely anathema to the devil and to his demonic teachers. There is nothing that a left-wing radical hates more than the blood redemption of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so they try to sanitize the gospel, the cross, so they can get rid of this slaughterhouse religion. 
And they try to spiritualize the tomb so that it will make the gospel line up with modern science. Well, I want to tell you, there was a burial, but there is no body. That body was not placed in a tomb. It was planted in that tomb. And three days later, the resurrection body of Jesus came blossoming forth. And until he comes... Every pulpit should be filled with a full gospel preacher who says, without compromise, we are saved by the blood of Jesus, and that Jesus Christ is a risen Lord. Third, third mark that you have been with Jesus is courage. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 states, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John were described as uneducated and untrained. Now, the first word refers to their education, and the second word refers to their lack of social position. These men had neither degree nor pedigree, They were two country bumpkins standing before the richest, most educated, and powerful men in all of the nation of Israel. And yet, they were not intimidated. They were intimidating. Do you know why? They had been with Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, There is something in the very tone of the man who has been with Jesus, which has more power to touch the heart than the most perfect oratory. These men had tremendous courage, first because they showed they did not bow to public opinion. Peter climaxes his speech by firmly declaring, chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that one statement would anger the Pharisees who did not believe in Jesus. And it would anger the Sadducees who did not believe in heaven. It would also anger the rest of the world who felt that one religion was as good as the other. Yet Peter said, there is a unique salvation and there is a unique savior. And And you go to heaven this way or you don't go at all. There are all kinds of synthetic salvations and all kinds of substitute saviors that are available. But I want to tell you this morning, there is only one salvation that is real, and that is the salvation that is by grace through faith. There's only one savior that is reliable, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one word of salvation, and that is the name of Jesus There is only one way of salvation, and that is the death of Jesus. There is only one work of salvation, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation is not in a creed. It is not in a code. It is not in a cause. It is not in a church. It is in Christ. I have preached often that Jesus is not a good way to heaven. He is not a better way to heaven. He is not even the best way to heaven. He is the only way to heaven. Now, I don't know of a statement that is more infuriating than this one statement. It is offensive to the Buddhist, to the Hindu, to the Muslim, 
to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. It's offensive to the world because they want to believe that all roads lead to heaven. Isn't it interesting that the same name that brought healing to a lame cripple and can bring holiness to a loving convert can bring hatred to a lost crowd. But these men didn't care what the world thought. They were not going to go along just to get along. And someone once said to the great defender of Christianity, Athanasius, because of Jesus, the whole world is against you. And he replied, then I am against the whole world. Second, they had tremendous courage because they showed they did not bow to powerful opposition. Look at who these men were up against. You know, chapter 4, verse 1 states, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. You know, the chief of the temple police was like the head of the KGB. He was the most feared and powerful man in all of Israel who could have put you to death instantaneously if you transgressed or trespassed on temple property. And after that, they were thrown in prison. And then they were brought before the Sanhedrin. In chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, it states, And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. This was the Jewish Supreme Court. Annas, the former high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, were the ringleaders in the crucifixion of Jesus. And they were trying to bring up the heat on Peter and John, but you couldn't even get them to sweat. Listen, if you stand for Jesus, you are going to make enemies in high places. If you want to win a popularity contest or do what is politically expedient or have influence in the hallowed halls of Congress or sit on the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies, then don't take a stand for Jesus. We ought to win friends and influence people for Jesus. But Jesus is not always the best way to win friends and influence people. And thirdly, they had tremendous courage because they showed they did not bow to private oppression. See, these men try to cut a deal with Peter and John. Chapter 4, verses 15 to 18 states, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them. And it is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in his name, and they call them and command them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Basically, they said, look, you can heal all the people you want. Start all the churches you want. Preach all the sermons you want. Just don't preach Jesus. That's exactly what our world is saying to us today. We don't mind religion. 
Just don't preach, promote, propagate, or proclaim Jesus. Well, I love the response. Chapter 4, verses 19 to 20 states, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which you have seen and heard. They said, Fellows, you can crack your whips, shoot your arrows, fire your guns, but we are going to do what is right in the sight of God. Isn't that refreshing? We are living in a day when polls and politics rather than principles rule the day. We are living in a day when politicians hold up their fingers to see which way the winds of public opinion are blowing before they vote on a matter. Well, I want to tell you today, what is right and what is wrong is not up for majority vote. You know, one of the greatest statements outside of the Word of God I've ever seen was made by William Penn, who said, Right is right, even if everyone is against it. And wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. Listen, what is right is right, because God says it is right. What is wrong is wrong, because God says it is wrong. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says about abortion. It doesn't matter what Congress says about homosexuality. It doesn't matter what Hollywood says about premarital sex. It doesn't matter what the governor says about gambling. It is wrong because God says it is wrong. And a man who has been with Jesus will stand for the right and stand against the wrong regardless of the consequences. And the fourth mark that you have been with Jesus is communion. Now, what was the secret of their courage? Peter, who just a few weeks before had stood before a little maiden as meek as a lamb, denying Jesus, yet now standing before a kangaroo court as bold as a lion, declaring Jesus. What was the difference? Well, first, the difference was the invisible presence of the Son of God Chapter 4, verse 13 states, And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Their lives were Christ-captured, Christ-converted, Christ-centered, and Christ-controlled. A man who has been with Jesus fears nothing or no one. They remembered what Jesus said, Do not fear him who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can kill both body and soul and cast it into hell. And the second difference was the indwelling power of the Spirit. There is a key phrase describing Peter in chapter 8, verse 8. It states, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there you have the source the secret and the sum and substance of courage, conviction, and compassion, the Holy Spirit of God. You see, these men were not inhibited because they were inhabited. When a man has been with Jesus, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. When a man is filled with the Holy Spirit, he has been with Jesus. And that man is in the majority because God is on his side.
And finally, the fifth mark is commitment. See, these men were sold out lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus. They were committed to Jesus. No one, not family, nor friends, no thing, not life nor limb, meant more to them than Jesus. They were committed to the preaching of Jesus. You know, quite frankly, if a law were passed today that would make it a crime to talk about Jesus, it would not bother many of you because many of you never talk about Jesus anyway. And to be honest, it would please a few of you because you may feel guilty now because you don't share Jesus and it would give you an excuse for your silence. If these disciples obeyed that law, their lives would have been so much easier. Nobody would have ever been upset with them. They could have never been under danger of persecution or imprisonment. They could have lived a nice, quiet life and died at a ripe old age. But you know the reason why many of us don't talk about Jesus? Because we are afraid of what people will say about us. And we are afraid of what people will say against us. Well, I want to tell you, if you ever truly met the risen Jesus, if you ever really have been with Jesus, then you will have to say with these disciples, and that is, we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. I do not believe I am far from the mark when I say, If you do not have a desire to tell somebody about Jesus, you have never been with Jesus. But they were also committed to the pleasing of Jesus. They didn't care about pleasing men. All they cared about was pleasing God. Now I want you to learn a valuable lesson this morning. These disciples were uneducated They were untrained. They didn't have a lot of influence, didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have a lot of intellectual brilliance. But if you have been with Jesus, you will find that a glowing testimony is worth a library full of arguments. Listen, there is no man to fear, no apology to make, and no excuse to be given if you have been with Jesus. Amen?